0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Vivian Mayer, the photographer who became a millionaire after her death. Vivian Mayer was a nanny, near recluse, and pseudo hoarder that lived in the Chicago area for close to 40 years. She also was a hobbyist photographer for much of that time. When she passed, it was in total anonymity. However, fate intervened, and through the quality of her photos, made her famous. Act One, The Nanny, a 16 millimeter camera. It's said that we're all artists when we're young. We're all born creative, and it's the harsh realities of the world that force us to abandon artistic pursuits. It's also said that every artist's true medium is compromise, how they manage time, opportunity, and their output. Today's subject took an interesting approach to all of those questions. She basically refused to interact with them at all. Vivian Dorothy Mayer was born on February 1st, 1926. Many of the details of her early years are lost to the sands of time, tragically. However, what we do know is that she was born in New York, the daughter of Maria Josard Justin and Charles Mayer. Her father was Austrian and her mother was French. It's said that she moved back and forth between the French countryside and New York as a young girl. She often went to live in the small French village of saint bonnet en Champsur. Vivian Meyer's mother purportedly had relatives in nearby villages, thus they settled there for stretches of time. Around the time that Vivian was four years old, her father seemed to abandon them. Maybe temporarily, reports differ. The 1930 census listed Jeanne Bertrand, the famous photographer, as the head of the household during this time. Bertrand was actually good friends with the founder of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Around this time, Vivian and her mother moved to the Bronx along with Bertrand by 1935 they were back in France and by 1940 Charles had rejoined the family and now a new census listed Charles Jr his son as being a resident of the household as well by 1940 back in New York
1: again you know on on the subject of on the subject of the fact that like up until a certain point her early life was completely obscured like there's just no details about it um Because, you know, usually with a lot of episodes, I I don't find it difficult to find a lot of details about the person, you know, from from birth. Um, There's usually a plethora of detail about them because we usually do episodes about people that aren't necessarily famous or really big or influential, but have become such a cultural topic of discussion, even if it's within a small subsection of people, maybe it's not like you know, a big cultural impact, but it's there's a group of people who are really interested in this thing or this person and have talked about it a lot. Like the Shags. The Shags, obviously the Shags aren't some big mainstream thing. Not very many people people know about them, but the subsection of people that do know about them are just very obsessed with them and have discussed with thing a lot of things with them, interviewed them a lot and gotten a lot of information out into the Ether about them. Um, but I find it fascinating and kind of sad when there's a figure when you can't, there's just nothing. Because I, you know, and I, I was reminded of that because I was actually re-listening to the David Hahn series. Uh, and I and I was just reminded of the fact that like there's no videos of him at all. There's really no pictures of him. There's like literally three pictures that we talked about in the whole series. And that's 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 really interesting to me because. It, it was it didn't it didn't happen now but it happened in the 80s and 90s there was cameras there was vi- there was home video camcorders. Um, I have a I have a lot of home movies of myself in the in the late 80s and early 90s that my parents took. Um, and I, and I, I think it's it's kind of sad because it's like it's th- the lack of details is dictated by the lack of care that anybody had in this in this person. And obviously, there's so many other people. There's people that we're not talking about at all. That people so thoroughly don't give a shit about. That we're just not even discussing them. There's there's zero significance. Um, But the reminder of it, the fact that it's like, oh, well, up until she was, you know, fifteen, there's zero details about her life, and the fact that there's like no pictures or videos of David Hahn for his entire life. It's it's just it's a reminder of that of that I you know the idea from uh the act of killing you know the you know the war criminals are decided by the winners there's also this idea of like the way that the 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 degree to which people are remembered and the level of detail that is sort of archived about people's lives is decided by the is decided by people's level of interest in them which is a very sad thing that you know the it, it, it's it's like the attention economy of the internet, but it's like a larger, more primordial version of it where um, people's people are remembered based on whether a large enough people give a shit about them. And that's that's very sad to me.
0: Well, especially with her where,
1: you know, her whole life she like actively avoided
0: the attention of others. And, you know, this is going to be a big discussion point for this episode of like – this person does, didn't want their work to be shown. This person didn't want to be remembered. This person wanted to be anonymous. And then this person fell into, obviously, a very extreme version of mental illness. And, you know, should we be remembering this person? Is that against their will? Um, and were they capable of making those decisions for themselves um, in terms of an artistic legacy and where that line is? Um, but that's jumping forward a, a little bit. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. As she entered adulthood, Vivian was asked what she did for a living in a job interview, and she simply said she was some kind of spy. So here's some uh, here's some photos that are self portraits that Vivian Mayer took of herself with her uh, patented uh, Rolleiflex camera, which will be a big. Um, a big character in this story. Um, what do you what do you think of these photos that are self portraits? And how would you describe Vivian
1: Mayer? She she looks like a suburban woman from a Tim Burton film. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Just the outfit, the the sort of like gaunt, you know, sort of like very narrow bone structure. Um, just 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 very very much like somebody that Tim Burton would cast. Yeah, she's got a very
0: a face filled with character. Um, She's got an interesting-looking nose, kind of close-set eyes, um, wider shoulders, brown hair, um, and a thin mouth that kind of always seems to be in some sort of semi-frown. It's not resting uh, resting bitch face. It's more resting the world is hard. (laughs) It's resting French face. It's resting the world is hard face, really, is what it is. uh, but these these photos are all black and white. There's a heavy play of shadow in them. She's obviously got a very good eye. There's lots of dynamic angles and um, these kind of specific this kind of specific mid torso camera placement that is going to yield interesting results uh, as she gets into street photography, where because she's holding a Roloflex camera, which is a sixteen millimeter camera that shot on film that you hold like at your chest level and then the viewfinder is on the top of the camera. So you kind of like look down. So you're not holding the camera up to your face and shooting people kind of at head level. You're holding it on your chest and you're kind of a shooting up at people's faces or, you know, kind of in a slightly lower angle. So all of the figures that she ends up photographing just look very immense and towering, even when they're minuscule people, um, which is... A very interesting uh, dichotomy that we're going to discuss later.
1: It's also interesting that she's sort of like nepo baby in absentia, because we're talking about a woman who like lived her life in obscurity and wanted to live her life in obscurity, but she had a she had a famous photographer as a father
0: for a period. For a for a period, right?
1: But because left and kind of abandoned them, uh, she didn't get to benefit from any of the like you know the the nascent nepotism of that like most like kids of celebrities do where it's like oh you're such and such daughter well you get a record deal i guess um but but uh, but apparently she must have soaked up some kind of Skill set of 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 the eye for photography that he had by osmosis, just by being ex, you know, just being around him for some amount of time. He exposed her to
0: cameras, handed her a camera, whatever, taught her how to use it. She caught the bug, and then it stayed with her for the rest of her
1: life. Obviously, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a nepo baby, that's that's how you get it. That's how you do it. You get the, get all the benefits of the skill, learning the the apprenticeship of of living with a parent from a from a field or some kind of skill set, but you don't get uh, roasted on tw- on tiktok. Yeah. The TikTok of the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The radio
0: radio radio TikTok. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about these uh self portraits? What do you what do you think of the photography?
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 uh it's inherently attractive. That's that's what I want that's what I describe it as. Um you you look at these photographs and it to me it just looks like this, these look like self-portraits of a famous photographer, that well, a legendary famous photographer. They, that, that, that's what they immediately jump out to me as.
0: Later in life, family friends would say that Vivian was truly an outsider and that she constantly had problems with her own family. Where those frictions came from have never been fully nailed down. What is known for sure is that she worked in a sweatshop at the age of 25 after moving back to New York from France again. Then, in 1956, she moved to Chicago's North Shore. She would spend approximately 40 years there as a nanny and caregiver. For the initial 17 years of that time, Vivian Mayer worked with two families, the Ginsburg's and the Raymonds, from 1956 to 72 and from 1967 to 73, respectively. Lane Ginsburg would later say of Mayer that she was like Mary Poppins and that she would take them on day trips, to different areas of the city, attempting to expose them to life outside of their affluent neighborhoods and upper-crust lifestyle. On her days off, Vivian Mayer would routinely roam through the city, taking photos of people from all walks of life. Her eye for light and dark, her sense of humor, and her sense of composition are immediately apparent in the photos. And yet, she never showed these photos to anyone. So this is a, we're gonna watch the opening. We're gonna play some other clips, but we're gonna watch the opening of this documentary that was made about her called Finding Vivian Mayer. Um, And uh, we're just gonna watch the opening a little bit and then talk about some of her photography.
2: Paradoxical. Bold. Yeah.
1: Mysterious.
2: Eccentric. Eccentric. Private. She was a very, very private woman. I never had any idea she took pictures. She would take photographs, many, many photographs.
0: She would never have let this happen.
2: Is there anything that you wish you would have done differently then?
1: Sure, I wish I would have found those negatives instead of you. (laughs) It was winter,
2: 2007. The auction house is across the street from my home. I found this box that was loaded with negatives. I was writing a history book, and I needed a lot of historic photos. And so I would like, you know, take the negatives and I'd look up into the light and I look for images of Chicago. There were several boxes that went with the set. I just went for the biggest one.
0: 39
2: I won it for, I think it was $380. The auction house told me the photographer, her name was Vivian Meyer. Google searched her, nothing at all. I mean, absolutely nothing. So I just kind of gave up for a while. I looked at some of the stuff that night and, and it was cool, but nothing worked for the book, so I just put it in the closet. Just had to figure out what am I gonna do with this stuff. That's what sparked me to start scanning it. I have a reflex where we'll be driving somewhere and I'll just like spot something from down the road that I know what it is and I know that it's valuable. I grew up doing the flea markets with my brother. My father didn't, his father didn't. I would do storage auctions with my brother and he'd win some and we'd clean them out. We threw out tons of negatives because there's no value in negatives to most resale people in these negatives that I discovered. When I saw it first, I didn't know if it was really good. I knew that I thought it was good. I contacted a couple galleries. I didn't know where to go. I made a photo blog and I put about 200 images up.
1: I preface this by saying that if I bought something at a garage sale or a flea market for like $10 and it was worth a million dollars, I would not on principle say no to that. I just I just have to say that. But that being said, I find the re- the reseller culture, Gary V like go to garage sales and buy stuff and resell it on eBay thing just so offensive. To my to my sensibilities, not not only because I just inherently find the idea of like collecting art for the sake of like selling it as some kind of like flipping like hustle to just be an insult to the 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 concept of art itself. But also whenever I was a kid and I I don't know if I don't know how many people relate to this experience. I don't know how common this is. But when I was a kid, a huge part of my childhood was going to flea markets and garage sales with my with my grandparents and then, you know, also my parents, you know, and or both. And it was all about just the pure joy of the discovery of like stuff that other people didn't want anymore that was like to you this treasure and like finding these really interesting cool things. Um, largely just like vintage stuff where it was like, you know, you go to a garage sale and you find some cool, like, I'm just thinking of like all the things that I ever found. Like, I remember one time we went to a place and I found an old like Tweety Bird snow cone maker from the 80s. Or one time we bought one of those Felix the Cat Clocks. Um, or uh, I would just go and find old, like, Nintendo games and things like that. And it was just this, like, this. it was just a joyful experience to go out and, like, the, the idea of, of discovery, of, like, treasures from the past. I, I have such fond memories of doing that when I was a kid. And the idea of doing that for the sake of, like, and then you can flip it for 50 duck bucks on eBay is just, like, it's 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 just offensive to me. in in every way. I'm so offended by the idea of like the resellers. I I agree. But that's also kind of not what this
0: guy did. He like fell ass backwards into this. I mean, what he's describing as a kid of being a reseller. Yeah, that's
1: different than. Yeah, well, it seems to me like what it's, it seems to me like it's almost like the opposite where he was doing that and then he fell upon this and he actually became fascinated in the story behind it and then didn't want to resell it. But just the I just the culture of it is it, it's just offensive to me in every imaginable way. Yeah well, we'll we, this is so much of a deeper conversation. We will we will
0: get to all of this.
1: Yeah, you, you can't see this, but it's just showing a slideshow of the F- Vivian Myers photos that he found. And yeah, I mean it's this this is kind of lost on the audience and there's no way to really, convey this, so it's almost not worth discussing, but they're all just, like, beautiful photographs. Yeah, lots of, you know, street life
0: in Chicago and New York City, lots of, you know, people caught in random moments of their life, you know, a woman wearing a mink coat, a man sleeping at a newspaper stand, a young boy wearing Mickey Mouse ears, like, there's all these kind of, like, bizarre little snapshots of people's existence.
1: Yeah, if if if, if I didn't know any better, if you told me, I would fully believe that these were photographs from some famous uh, some some famous photographer like a famous fashion photographer or like a journalist who like these were just like the photographs that she took during her regular life and then they're featured in some kind of like life magazine spread of like you know Vivian Mayer the you know the the street the street years or something like that like I would fully believe that that was the case I put a link on
2: Flickr. post, it just went insane. So I went on this mission to piece together the rest of her work. And then I found the other people who bought boxes and I bought their boxes. And then I had all these negatives, like insane amounts of negatives. You always want to know who is behind the work. I just knew her name was Vivian Meyer. She's a journalist, professional photographer. Uh, Let me just Google her name again to see if there's anything up. I found an obituary that was placed just a few days before that search. I found an address in her stuff and after some like white page searches I called and I said I have the work the f- negatives of Vivian Meyer and he's like oh that was my nanny. That was his nanny. Why is a nanny <laughs> taking all these photos?
1: Fucking nanny. What they usually started to they, tell me about her countless pieces of shit
2: was, was strange. He said she was kind of a loner. She didn't have any family that we knew of. She never had any love life or children that we knew of. But she was like our mother. So it, it just caught my curiosity. So what I said was, do you have any of her stuff? And they said, well, I've been keeping up the bills on her storage lockers. We want to throw all the stuff out. She was a pack rat. I said, no, 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 don't throw it. He's like, she, he's like you don't understand. She was a pack rat. We're going to get a dumpster. You're welcome to come and help us. If you see anything that you like that we're going to throw out, you can have. I just wanted to go find out who she was. Just
0: a quick... So the thing that's really interesting to me about Vivian Mayer or Meyer, she said it both ways. So he keeps saying Meyer in this, but I've heard it said Mayer before, and I know that she specifically introduce yourself as both and also introduce yourself as Vivian
1: Smith and Vivian Myers and Vivian Mayers. I've heard it both ways if you if you're a, if you're a psych fan you get that reference also we have a friend who for like literally the first year or two that we knew th- that we knew him We referred to him. He's one of those people that you refer to by their last name. So it's like even crazier because he's someone like, you know, if I was like, hey, Baker, he's one of those type of guys. And for the first like year or two that we knew him, we we were pronouncing his last name wrong and he never said anything or corrected us. And then one day casually mentioned that his name was pronounced completely differently. And we were just like, why didn't you say anything? And he was like, oh, he basically was like, you didn't ask. But one of the one of the things I want to bring up
0: initially about Vivian Meyer, Vivian Mayer, Vivian Mayers, Vivian Smith, whatever the fuck we're calling her, is there's a trope. You know, she's kind of been lumped in with a bunch of outsider artists, uh, people who, you know, I love outsider art. I think it's very fascinating. People who, you know, we've done multiple episodes about notable outsider artists before. Uh, People who spend their whole life toiling away in secret or people who uh, have these kind of massive career resurgences not based off of skill or um, an awareness of how art is typically made. And people who have kind of self-taught or people who are kind of making art on the fringes that then gets somehow sparked interest and attracts uh, a large viewership. The thing that usually delineates what is and isn't outsider art is a sense of naivete, primal innocence, lack of skill. That is not that is not Vivian Mayer. She has a lot of skill, which is super fascinating to me that she's, you know, as you had kind of said, either either her stepdad taught her some stuff when she was young, or she just went and taught herself. Um, you know, it's it doesn't seem like she has a formal education but we don't know but it doesn't it doesn't seem like she was formally taught in any meaningful way and the fact that her photos are
1: so good it's amazing yeah and to be clear what i said was not meant to imply that she was taught by her stepdad necessarily like i don't think that she had to be taught by somebody what i what i meant was just you know being around the the be, being around somebody who was discussing things about photography and obviously, you know, taking pictures and she was exposed to that, you know, pun not intended, exposed to that culture or that or that skill set. Uh, and I'm sure that from there she could take that and teach herself. You know, I don't i don't necessarily mean to say that, like, she had to learn that from somebody else in order to be talented or be skilled. Um, but just that she because she was in that world and exposed to that, that she maybe, you know, absorbed some of it through osmosis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's understandable or a logical leap to make. I think, um, I think it's also she seems somebody. She seems like somebody who is very interested in maybe out of a self serving need, but you know, interested in lower class people, interested in the struggle of existence. And she gets these portraits of people where they're just like it's just there's just pain on their faces, um, and they're beautiful photos. Um, and it, it's kind of kind of haunting there's a very mercurial ghost like uh energy to a lot of her photos which is really interesting also because she's somebody who obviously has a deep well of emotion and spent her life caring for children and yet also has no real earthly connections to people has no family that she speaks to is very secretive does all of these this photo stuff in secret um, there's a bunch of stories that the people in the documentary tell about how she's always locking the door to her room, no one ever saw her room. Um yeah, it's just fascinating. It's just, it's a very odd dichotomy.
1: Yeah, because you know, because the the the, the lifeblood of photography, especially vernacular photography is recognition of humanity and that that's what this that's what the that's what the skill set is built around. I mean, there's technical skill set there's a technical aspect to photography. There is a um, quantifiable science to photography that goes into being a good photographer or a great photographer or taking good photos. But the, the heart of it is the recognition of humanity. And what makes a good photographer is somebody who recognizes those moments and knows when to capture them. Like that's that's like the intangible X factor of a great photograph. It's like, oh, what's the difference between this supposedly great photo and then me just taking out my phone and snapping a picture? Uh, you know, I know the the rule of thirds, and I you know I know how to s- expose it properly, and I know what the f stop needs to be for certain lighting, and all these things. What's what what other thing is there that makes this such a better photo? And that's what it is. It's somebody who has the sensitivity to recognize um, extremely human moments and know how to capture them in a way that that is conveyed to somebody looking at a picture of something, you know? And she clearly has that profound sense of sensitivity um, from these photos. I was going to say just uh, briefly, just to dovetail off what you're saying,
0: the 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 profound sense of awareness that you're talking about, you know, the, the technical knowledge, usually is... Antithetically related to someone who's very secretive, you know. Usually, outsider artists are painters or craftspeople of some kind, or artists that, uh, you know, uh, drawing or writing. Where you're, you the whole, the whole point is that it's something you can teach yourself, right? And like, yeah, yeah, can you teach yourself photography? Of course, yes, absolutely, but. Usually when you're, when you have a very high skill level, you've studied, you've shared knowledge, you, this is, you know, in the days before YouTube. Now, can you be a great photographer without ever having a formal class or going and experiencing things with other people? 100%, you don't, you don't even leave, leave your house um, to acquire that knowledge. But it's very apparent that she has either an innate skill or somebody that showed her some stuff, or she was just very brilliant in the way that she approached the creative process
1: because she obviously is very skilled and very good at it. The interesting thing about what you said about the idea that people uh, conflate her with an with outsider artists, but that's not necessarily what she is, is, um, you know, this was discussed in the Shags episode, and I think a little bit in the Henry, Henry Darger episode, but I specifically remember uh, a, a detailed uh, discussion about it in the Shags episode, um, about this idea that, you know, the, the classification of outsider artist can be wielded as a cudgel of elitism and this idea of looking down your nose at somebody because they are in some way um their 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 work or their art their their work is fascinating in a in a in a sort of like rudimentary primitive way and and the people sort of like j- the, the, they center around this idea of like oh my god look how naive this person is and in their naivete they've accidentally created something that's very interesting or very unique or very fascinating. And I think that the the idea that because she was unknown and because her full-time job for 40 years was nanny, that that means that she's an outsider artist is a very capitalist way of looking at it because the idea that she wasn't pursuing a career As a photographer, the idea that she wasn't notable and known inherently means that she was an outsider artist completely discounts the idea that somebody who isn't famous, isn't notable, and isn't pursuing a career could be skilled at something and could be as skilled as somebody who was notable and famous and recognizable and pursuing a career, you know? Yeah, completely. I think you're spot on the
0: money. Um, the final thing I'll say before we take a little act break is that, um, I think there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting Delta specifically between the fact that she was a nanny and she was exposing children to the idea of photography and how reclusive and anti everybody else she seemed to be. I think that's fascinating that, you know. Part of that, I think, is a gender role thing where, you know, if she was a man, I don't think she would have spent 40 years as a nanny, um, uh, especially during that time. That was more of an uh, acceptable thing for an unskilled, in air quotes, unskilled woman to do, right? Um, and I think there's, you know, judging from the people from the documentary that she was involved in their life, I think for some of those people, she was a very positive force. And for some of those people, uh, a, a tangibly negative force. Um and I think that's also interesting that um, this person obviously experienced trauma as a younger person. Um, in the documentary, one of the the men who is now an adult talks about when they were when, when he was a little a little boy, um, she told him and his sister to be aware of men because they only want one thing. And then I believe the way he phrased it is, "You'll sit on their lap and then you'll feel something poking you." Um, and she very, yeah, I mean, I, I think she was, you know, and they even say in the thing, like, it's, it's very apparent in the way that she interacted with people and specifically interacted with men, that as a child, something very bad happened to her, and it permanently warped her, um, and, and it plays out in multiple ways over the, you know, the interesting thing about this documentary is that John Maloof interviews, you know, 15 or 20 people that knew her at various, points in her life. And it's so interesting to hear the older people talk about how kind and giving and, uh, you know, interesting she was and how like, you know, she took them on these weird road trips into the inner city where they would walk around and she would take photos and they would like experience life outside of their rich suburbs. And then like the middle era people are like, yeah, she was kind of weird and like secretive and like she was okay, but she walked funny. Everybody talks about how she kind of stomped and she swung her right arm really violently when she walked. Um, And then the like later period people from like the, you know, 80s and 90s, uh, the last people that she was involved with, she was abusive to one of the child, one of the children. She like shoved food down the the young girl's throat and would choke her until she swallowed it. And she did this for weeks and months. And she would just abuse this this poor child, um, and then she also got like f- fixated on newspapers. And she would cut out newspaper clippings, which is also something Henry Darger did. But she would cut out newspaper clippings and store them in her room. And one day she came home to the family that was uh, employing her because she lived in the in like a uh, apartment above their attic above their house. And they were using newspaper clippings as, uh, you know, like lining on the floor because they were painting. And she she started freaking out and screaming because she thought that they were her newspapers that she had been saving. And that ultimately ended up severing that relationship because it was such a weird, violent outburst over newspapers. And so you can just slowly see this trauma eating away at this poor woman and not even that I know that there is something you could do with help, but she obviously wasn't seeking help and didn't have any, nobody in her life knew that this was happening because they're only getting these small incremental snapshots. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's very sad uh, to see that trauma and mental illness just eat someone away. And that's not to excuse the abuse that she caused, but it's it's an informing factor and i you know it it's just you know i don't think you spend every day off for 40 years alone walking the streets taking photos of strangers because you're like a well-centered happy-go-lucky person with a loving family at home right um and then i don't think you i don't think you keep all of those rolls of film either you know like thousands of rolls of film you know tens of thousands of photos for Fifty years or sixty years, and never develop them, you know. Like,
1: yeah, and it, yeah, it's it's emblematic of the the cycle of the cycle of violence and trauma that comes from a, an increasingly hyper individualistic society that completely downplays, de-emphasizes, um, you know, the the individual struggles of people as kind of like that's your problem. You need to deal with that. Maybe shut up about it. Don't make a big deal about it. People suffer in silence for their entire lives. That results in them propagating and recapitulating that violence. Doesn't excuse it. Doesn't mean like, oh, they, it's okay that they did that because of X, Y, and Z reasoning. But it's just, it's just emblematic of the cycle of violence that a hyper-individualistic society generates. Whenever every, everybody is supposed to take care of their own shit, um, we can't do that. We're not built to take care of our own shit. And when we have to, we internalize things and then we do things to other people. And it just creates a culture of violence, basically.
0: Act Two, A Guy Named John. Smash cut to 2007. Two years before she died, Vivian Mayer was unable to keep up payments on a storage facility that she had rented on the north side of Chicago. Because of this, her negatives, prints, audio recordings, and 8mm film was auctioned off. At the auction, three photo collectors bought parts of her work. John Maloof, Ron Slattery, and Randy Prow. John Maloof quickly became the spark that would reignite interest in Vivian's work for the first time.
1: First of all, John John Maloof, Ron Slattery, and Randy Prow sound exactly like three photo collectors that go to auctions and buy a bunch of random boxes of photos. Like, those are the exact names of those people. So here's something that, you know, makes me... Um,
0: kind of like a deeply uncomfortable and is to me kind of the central dramatic thesis of this episode vivian meyer was an artist whether she was financially successful or not you know whether she pursued it or not whether she wanted it to be published or not that last question i think is the defining characteristic that is very compelling to me she Obviously didn't want this stuff to get out there, whether that be through mental health issues and psychosis or what have you, or an actual just for her, the process of creating was enough. And then for this artist's highly skilled body of work to end up in the hands of some random person and that person to make a call on the estate is this weird, like liminal space morally where... Her work is amazing and deserves to be seen. I love her photographs. I'm so glad that it has been exhumed from the cultural waste bin. But also it is so very apparent that she does not want this stuff to come out or did not want this stuff to come out or wasn't mentally capable of processing that question later in life. And the fact that it's not a family member or someone directly with a vested interest in it it feels weird to me. I don't know. It, am I off base with that?
1: No. So I mean, I I kind of I was thinking that this would be like wrap up discussion, but like fuck it, we're we're getting into it. But uh, my thoughts that I've been percolating on since we've been discussing the story are going very much in that direction. And to me, it's like a bigger. It's it's even bigger than that because you're talking about like she didn't want she nest she clearly didn't seem to want this stuff published, and then. Some random person is just arbitrarily making judgment calls about you know the the work being published, and I, I the the thinking that I've been having is like uh, is like larger scale than that, and it's it's this very it's this very precarious paradigm and this very precarious this very distinct moral contract that to a certain extent we we are part- participating in the breaking of. Um, because the interesting years ago, I was listening to there, there's this there's this song by St. Vincent called Surgeon. And the song is like it's about Marilyn Monroe. And it's uh just it's just like a, it's just a, about it's a, it's kind of like about the trauma that she experienced as a woman and parts of the song are literally like lines that were taken from uh her private journals which were which were published uh you know in the same way as this and i i was listening to this interview with saint vincent one time and they were talking about the song and it was interesting and i'm not i'm not saying this in a critical way of her it was just very interesting but she's talking about the song and she's talking about the fact that it was inspired by marilyn monroe and that um the the lines like best finest surgeon cut come cut me open were like literal um quotes from her personal Diaries. And she's talking about Marilyn M- Monroe as this figure who was like sort of murdered by celebrity, uh, just you know, one of the first people that was so high profile and so hyper fixated on and um and and, and hyper scrutinized for her behavior. That it just over time basically killed her, and how you know her her privacy was invaded, and uh, you know by by the by the cameras eye, by the limelight, and over time it just got to her and slowly broke down her mental health until she eventually you know died by you know, somewhat mysterious circumstances, but ultimately, like, from some kind of, like, overdose of something and seemed to be directly caused by just the stress and trauma that she was experienced as being, like, a, a, a high-profile woman being hyper-scrutinized by all of, of the world um, and sort of, like, judged for her actions in a very sexualized way. And in the interview, the, the interviewer was like – well, you, you know, it's interesting because, like, aren't, aren't you contributing to that by using the lines from her diary in your song? Wouldn't the ultimate expression of solidarity with her just be to not engage with that material at all? And she was like, oh, my God, you're right. Like, she like she had, like, a realization in this interview that she had, like, v- participated in violating Marilyn Monroe's privacy by taking these, these words from this b- diary and putting them as lyrics in her song and i was thinking about that and i was thinking about the fact that as you're saying um she clearly just had she it's not that she had no interest but she clearly seemed to specifically not want to or be very protective of having her work shown to people you know and and you could have whatever Opinion you want about that, you can say, like, oh, she was just being insecure. She was, you know, scared and she shouldn't be. And she should, sh- it was beautiful work. She should have shown it off to the world. But at any rate, whatever you want to say about it, that's what her wishes were. She clearly, by her behavior, enthusiastically did not give consent for her work to be shown. Right. And there's a, there's like a, there's a charm in that. I think, especially in a post social media post-self-governed surveillance state that we live in right now where everything is documented. People film every aspect of their lives. They film every aspect of other people's lives. Anytime they ever have a conflict or a discussion or an argument or even a positive heartwarming moment with loved ones or strangers, it has to be turned into content. I think that a lot of people um, desire, uh, events that are not documented. There's a, there's a, there's a charm or an allure to something that wasn't made to be content. Right. And, and, and recently there was a video that went viral on TikTok. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a video of somebody driving by and there's this guy, um, in, uh, Engle- I think he's in Inglewood and he's just on the street corner and he he like he has this huge afro so he's like you know from far off he's just like his silhouette is just very distinctive he's like a skinny dude wearing just like a like a t-shirt and jeans and then this massive afro and he's got a big amplifier and a microphone and he's just on the street corner and he's singing along to breaking benjamin and it's and and he's like good he sounds good and somebody drives by and they're just like who is this guy and they're like filming him and he's singing or whatever. And then they're like, this is amazing. And then they drive away and that video went super viral. And if you go and you look in the video, if you look in the thousands of comments, you can see why the video went viral. And it's it's thousands of people being like, no camera, no live stream, just vibes. People were really attracted to the idea that he was just doing it for traffic. He wasn't trying to like film himself. He wasn't trying to make a viral video he wasn't trying to live stream there was zero in- content intention zero intention of engaging with social media or documenting or creating content around it he was just singing for traffic on at this intersection and that's what the video went viral for but that's that's ironic right that's that's like a contradiction because the video went viral it was it was forcibly or you know it was recorded without consent and I'm not saying that like a negative way, like, oh, this person should shouldn't have done this. But it was recorded without consent because he wasn't filming himself. It was uploaded, and then that went viral based on the idea that he wasn't doing it to go viral, right?
0: And, but, and, but, and there's, there's also the, the fact that like he is at a public place singing, like, it's not like he's in his own home tinkering away on an
1: album that he's never going to release. I'm not even saying that like it was wrong to do, but just like the idea that he was doing, that he wasn't doing it as content was the appeal to people that made the video go viral. So this is, it's this weird Ouroboros where even like we just, we, in a post social media post you know, uh, Self-governed surveillance state. We crave offline moments, but in our craving of them, we make them content. We make them online, right? But I think that there's, but I think that there's
0: something, there's something even weirder though, and more duplicitous about it. Because I think you know, deeply rooted in the American psyche is this idea that we're all unique snowflakes who have this something to offer you know we're all special we're all capable of writing the great American novel we're all actors just waiting to be discovered you know especially the movie thing like how many people are like literally just normal humans plugged into a larger music or cinematic apparatus and then become massive celebrities you know people get quote-unquote discovered to be models and like all of these it's a it's a big piece of the American psychic folklore you know and I think that there's, there's a deeply romantic part of our country that is just obsessed with that idea of, like, one day I could be chosen. It's the same thing of, like, anyone can grow up to be president. It's like, you can either grow up to be president or one day you can be found, you know? It's this weird cultural runner-up runner prize. And um, there's something about that idea that's interlinked with this idea that John Maloof found this thing, is interested in this artist's work, and then spends all this time and energy trying to get her to be recognized and have her work be collected by these large um, artistic institutions like, you know, the New York Metropolitan uh, or, you know, you know, MoMA or what, whatever, you know, and, and that he's doing this in the way that it's talked about is he's doing it as this altruistic, like, this is an artist who deserves to be seen which I think on one level, you can absolutely make that case. But because it's America, there's always a seedy, underbelly capitalist alternative in that he's not just a guy. He owns the work. He, uh, he has a vested interest, a vested financial interest in the work being respected, appreciated, and venerated by these larger institutions that he directly benefits from. Furthermore, he also seems like a frustrated creative. He seems like somebody who is either a frustrated writer, photographer, artist guy who is kind of just a normal white dude. So maybe he doesn't have an exciting point of view or maybe he doesn't have an exciting story or whatever it is about him that didn't click with a larger base of, you know, followers. And then he found this and was like, oh, this can be my thing. This can be I can be the the puppet master, you know? And then he goes on and makes this movie, Finding Vivian Meyer, and it's like, not only is he the protagonist of the movie, but he made the movie. And there's all these, like, you know, him talking to camera, you know, confessions, and, like, he's advocating for her, and it's his own camera. And it's he's the one pushing record, walking around in front of it, and sitting there and sitting down. Like, it's 100% this weird orchestrated marketing campaign, which... Look, we should all be so lucky. We should all have a fucking guy who wants to, you know, work as our publicity agent after we're dead. But also, he owns the work and he has no connection to her and he's actively violating what everyone in her life said she would want.
1: Yeah, and and on top of that, the, in, the inherent allure of the work or an aspect of the allure of the work and maybe if not the allure of the work, at least the thing that makes it notable or something that people would want to talk about is that it's this amazing photography from this completely unknown person that nobody's ever heard of that was found in a box in an attic somewhere. And it's actually amazing. That's like the appeal or like the, you know, the framing of it. And so in that sense, you know, many people, including us, we're doing this episode right now because of that, right? We're doing this episode because of the concept that an amazing photographer was just never known and had no interest in showing their work and then it was found and brought to the public and in that sense we are all collectively complicit in violating the privacy of this person because we're just we're we're we're, we're furthering this this we're furthering the the violence of somebody being like hey this person never wanted anyone to see this here it is and then we're just like, wow, that's crazy. Let's fucking talk about it for an hour and a half, you know. And also like, wow,
0: they didn't want us to see it, but it's so good. You know, like artistic quality supersedes individual wishes, maybe. I don't know. It's so strange. Um, But then the, and the narrative is compelling, right? Like so much of the fine art world is not about craft. It's about a narrative. And for better or for worse, John Maloof is, he's really the artist that we're talking about here today, not Vivian Meyer. I mean, we are talking about Vivian Meyer, but Vivian Meyer is the artwork and John Maloof is the artist. He's the one constructing the narrative. He's the one building this apparatus that is going to profit off of these photos. It's the same as, you know, Kuntz hiring somebody to design his sculptures and fabricate his sculptures, right? Like the John Maloof is the performance artist. Vivian Meyer is the end product that is being marketed and sold to us, which is super bleak because she's mentally ill and also didn't want this. And also an extremely talented artist. But it's an artist selling another artist as the art, which is super weird to me. Super fucking
1: weird. And also, we have to talk about whether it's Vivian Mayer, as in she is the great grandmother of frat rock virtuoso John Mayer, or Vivian Meyer, as in she is the heiress to the Midwest Meyer grocery store empire. I think it's I think it's Meyer, but I think I mispronounced it
0: earlier in the episode. But it's fine, whatever. It's okay. We're not worried about it. <laughs> it doesn't undercut our uh, our uh, pseudo intellectual ramblings, right? Right.
2: <laughs>
1: I think it's pronounced mayor, Mayor! I like the sound of that. I wanna run through the halls of the
0: storage facility, take in all the photos indeed. That was
1: somewhere in there was that John Mayer song.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't know that I don't know anything about John Mayer other than he's kind of a douche. Eventually, John Maloof found an obituary. After searching through the work again, he found an address. John tracked these pieces of work back to a man who said that the artist in question was their former nanny. After talking with the Glensbergs over the phone, John learned that they had been paying Vivian's storage fees on other storage facilities and that they were planning on disposing of all of the work. They invited him to come help as they threw out most of what she had stored there because she was, quote-unquote, a pack rat. Anything he wanted, they offered to let him keep. They found a leather chest filled with film rolls. They also found that she had massive amounts of other materials. He didn't
2: know what to do with all of this stuff. Unfortunately, the museum cannot accommodate these photographs at this time. At that point, I just figured I'm on my own. I'm gonna try to do an exhibition. I'm gonna do a book. It's an insane amount of work. I'm kind of compulsive with stuff. I just wanted people to see this incredible work. And I applied for a show at the Cultural Center in Chicago. They said, this was the biggest turnout for any artist they had ever had and then the story just took
1: off. The history of street photography is currently being rewritten. Vivian Mayer. Vivian Meyer. (laughs) (laughs) Vivian Meyer? Saved from obscurity. obscurity. In death, she is getting the fame that she never had in life. John Maloof is still working
2: his way through all Meyer's negatives. My mission is to put Vivian in the history books.
1: My first impression when I saw the work was the kind of delight when a surprise comes your way and you feel that somebody hitherto undiscovered suddenly makes their work available and it looks good. It looks like there's an authentic eye and a real savvy about human nature and photography and the street and That kind of thing doesn't happen that often. I see thousands of pictures day after day. People send me their websites to look at. And when I flick through them, I feel most of them are undistinguished. But Vivian's work instantly had those qualities of human understanding and warmth and playfulness that I thought, this is a genuine shooter.
2: She had a great eye. She had a great sense of framing. What is she looking at here? I can't, this is it's the first muddy one. a bloody construction worker's butt. Oh my God. She had a sense of humor. And a sense of tragedy. Beautiful. Those felt of the children are beautiful. Beautiful sense of life, environment. I mean, she had it all. Was she very prolific? Did she shoot a lot? Total, there's about 150,000 negatives. She shot a lot. But she never showed her work to anybody.
0: She never showed her work to anybody. Interesting. You should make a movie out of this and then make money
1: off of it and then show people and then monetize it and then make TikToks off of it. No, I mean, it's ex- It's exactly what you were saying. Like, that, the way that was where it's just like him being like, I'm very meticulous about the way I do these things. And it's just him like set up this camera and then walk in front of it and then record myself meticulously cleaning this picture off. And, and then like when he's at the art gallery and everyone's like, it's great. And then he's just standing there looking around like beaming with pride. It, it, it reminds, it's, it reminds me of like the, I don't know if you, the, the plot to, uh it's, it's like stolen valor it, for like art, For like art, for like, for like artistic expression. But that's the thing though, is it? I don't know
0: because there's a, there's a component of me that's like, I wish there were a hundred, there was, I wish there were a hundred John Maloofs who cared about people whose works have been overlooked by society and are going out and trying to track down their history and their family and make their legacy known. You know, I wish that I wish there was 200, four, I wish there was thousands of people like that that cared about pushing people who are unseen into the spotlight. Yes and no. Yeah, exactly, but exactly, yes and no. I, I also am like, but he has no real connection to this and he's profiting off of it and it's exactly converse to her behavior, what her behavior would
1: indicate and what everybody in her life says she would have hated. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, it, it oddly reminds me of the plot to Dear Evan Hansen, the Broadway play, because in that play, basically the kid, Evan Hansen, he has to write letters to himself for his for therapy, where he has to kind of like talk to himself and like work through his problems. And then this other kid at school, like, basically, he's, like, a troubled teen. He has a run-in with him, and he, like, steals one of his letters. He, like, like bullies him and takes it away. And then that kid commits suicide. The bully commits suicide. And people find the letter, and they think that it's, like, a letter from Evan Hansen to him and that they were friends. So then his family, like, basically starts talking to him, and they're like, well, you know, we want to talk to you about – About your relationship with him because we didn't know he had friends. And then he ends up kind of like lying and pretending like he was friends with the guy. And ultimately, he starts this foundation about that's like meant to like it's like it's like a no child left behind type thing where it's meant to spotlight people dealing with like depression because they are overlooked and nobody cares about them and he builds this whole viral moment and everybody thinks of him as a hero because he creates this thing where he's like, you know, we have to make sure that nobody ever, you know, wants to kill themselves again because nobody cares. And it, he he it's he builds this whole thing around himself and it's all about him and he's he's weaponizing it to create validation for himself under the guise that he's doing this selfless altruistic thing for somebody else, but in reality He's just trying to soak up the attention. And it, it reminds me of that. There's also, but there's also, a, there's an added
0: component that's kind of this weird like, what is the nature of art? Is the nature of art for the artist to express themselves? And if it is viewed, then that doesn't matter. And as long as the artist is satisfied with just the act of creation, that's all. Or is it like a bear shits in the wood thing where it's not art unless it's put out in public and people see it and you're aware of it and it creates a conversation and blah, 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 blah. You know, and I, look, I don't, I'm not saying I fall on one side or the other of this, but it you can tell that he's using that as the smoke screen to say, yeah, but come on. These photos are really good. And they are. They're really good. And the story's compelling. You want to know.
1: Yeah, it, it, all, it also... It also makes me think of this is like a this is like a specific genre, which I don't know what you would call it, but it's like it's the genre of like tr- trying to force reclusive people be acknowledged. Well, I because there's I there's so many examples of artists who at the end of their
0: lives have said you know like didn't like kafka's last book didn't he tell his best friend to burn it and then his best friend didn't and it's one of the classics same thing with jane
1: austen didn't she want one of her books burned and now it's a fucking classic and like yeah and and like i never wanted anybody to know about tiny ice because it was such a personal piece of work and then you forced us to document my creation of tiny ice And now it's the greatest ice invention of our generation. And I'm thought of as a genius amongst my peers, but I didn't want it like that. And it's like, you know, should, should you have forced tiny ice out into the world against my consent? So it's this weird thing, or even like, you know, I mean, this is not necessarily his consent,
0: but even, you know, Lovecraft, right? He wasn't famous in his day, but his agent took up the standard bearer and beat the drum and- convinced people that the work the the work was worth looking at. and it's it had this huge global impact. And that guy was had a financial vested interest because he controlled the rights to all the books and the short stories. So,
1: like, where is the line? There's definitely a gray area, and I don't know where that line is, but there's but there's a difference between just not publishing something and enthusiastically making it clear that you do not want something shown to people. But that's the thing. She never said that, right? She never she never explicitly stated that
0: it's just she was never given really an opportunity to have anything shown to anyone and everything about her life would indicate that she wouldn't have wanted it but she never she literally never was even given an opportunity
1: yeah and but i'm i'm taking i'm taking the fact that she like died with these photos like locked in a box somewhere as that enthusiastic expression of not wanting them to be shown to anybody and i could be wrong maybe maybe she didn't care and it was just she just didn't happen to show them but it feels like that and and the, the the thing that I'm the thing that I'm talking about is like there's other that just the, the amount of the documentary that we watched so far it also reminds me of that documentary Dear Mr. Watterson which I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of for that exact same reason which is the I'm I'm a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan and I, I'm sure you are as well eh. Oh well <laughs> never mind I'm a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. <laughs> The first thing the first thing I bought with my paycheck from a real job where I actually had disposable income was the complete Calvin and Hobbes. That was the first thing I bought with my first paycheck.
0: Uh, when I was in Ohio two weeks ago, there's a bunch of Bill Watterson artwork uh, and Calvin and Hobbes pages at the Billy Ireland Comics Museum. And you best believe I had my nose glued to them shits. I was like, let me see. Let me see that Hobbes. Let me see the Hobbs. Give me the Hobbs. I want the Hobbs. It's really interesting, too, because they even have his original pitch pages before it was picked up by the syndicate. So they had, like, the original pitch pages where Calvin's hair is, like, over his eyes. Like, the whole thing is he has, like, Beatles hair that, like, covers his eyes. And, um, yeah, I loved it. I was just, like, look
1: at those those brush lines. Look at those brush lines. But but famously, Bill Watterson just kind of disappeared off the map and kind of doesn't want people bothering him. And the, and the central conceit of that whole documentary is like, I'm a lifelong Calvin and Hobbes fan. I love Bill, Bill Watterson. I just want him to talk to me and I want, I, I I want to have a connection with him. And then he, the whole movie is him just trying to do that. And then he doesn't because Bill Watterson does not want to be contacted. He doesn't want to be in a documentary and it just kind of ends on this weird note of like, well, I didn't get to do that, but he's still great. And we, it, it was, it was, it wasn't the destination, but the journey along the way. Have you seen? Have you seen the Bill Murray documentary? That's kind of the same exact thing. It's,
0: it's like the same idea. It's the same, and it ends the exact same way, where the guy is like, the whole time he's been like, I'm just trying to get a hold of Bill Murray because I'm trying to, I love Bill Murray, and then he goes to a baseball game that Bill Murray's at, and he tries to talk to him. And Bill Murray just kind of like either he walks by him or he doesn't notice that he's there or whatever. Like it, they, they don't connect and he doesn't get a chance to interview him. And he's like, well, I'd realized at the end of the day that fucking not talking to Bill Murray was the most Bill Murray thing to do
1: because Bill Murray is just a force of nature and he's just doing his own thing. Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah. Or he just wants you to leave him alone. And like, what the fuck are you doing? And the, and the I haven't seen that. But also the other thing is that podcast series where the guy is trying to get in contact with Richard Simmons, where like he at a time was like a was like friends with him. And then Richard Simmons famously just kind of like became a recluse. He doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't like come out of his house. He doesn't give interviews anymore. And the, that one felt even more insidious to me because it's, it's framed like a true crime, like serial style doc, uh, podcast, where it's like, is there something going on? Is he being held captive by his maid? Is, is there some kind of elder abuse thing happening where they're not letting him go out? And you spend the whole podcast series thinking that it's building to something because it's framed like that of like I'm uncovering the truth of the fact that Richard Simmons, my friend, is secretly being abused by his maid and then at the end, it's just like, no, he just doesn't want to talk to anybody. I, I guess I'm just going to leave him alone. I guess I'll respect his wishes
0: and not monetize my somewhat tangential relationship with him
1: for a pod. Uh, never mind. And they, they, they're all in that same vein of just like like, like I said, it's like f- trying to force reclusive people to, to be seen.
0: You know what the good version of this is, though? Have you ever seen, I think it's called... I think it's just called Salinger or maybe Searching for Salinger. Have you seen that documentary? No, I, I think I've heard the title. But- I mean, it's you know what it is. It's this exact same type of movie, except it's we're going to go find J.D. Salinger. We're going to talk about his personal life because he really doesn't want his personal life talked about. We're going to talk about the fact that he's had multiple relationships with uh, younger women, like w- far too young for him. And, uh, you know, uh, now he's living out in the middle of nowhere and nobody knows where he is. Oh, wait, we found him in Vermont. We're going to go see if we can Oh my God, there he is walking out of a grocery store. Wow. That's the documentary. But I will say that, that the Salinger version of it is more interesting only because Salinger is a more fucked up person and done wrong to people, seemingly, seemingly done wrong to people. Um, so there's... An interesting conversation around his like almost psychosis in his workaholism the way he's treated his children the way he interacts with these various partners that he's had and how he's mistreated people and the nature of like you know kind of do you have to be a shitty person to be a great artist that that whole fucking you know conversation that happens every so often Um, But I found that documentary very compelling. But that's because it doesn't end with the journey was the journey. The friends we made along the way was the J.D. Salinger. It's like they actually find him and show like, oh, here's what he's doing. And, And they also uncover that like he's secretly written all of these other books that are going to be published after his death. Like. You know, one in 2020, one in 2025, one in 30, one in 35, one in 50 and one in 70 or something like that. Um, I'm making those dates up. That's probably not the real dates, but you know what I mean. Like they're all it's orchestrated and like it's a big revelation at the end of the documentary, which is like if you're going to do the recluse thing and profit off of someone's weird private thing. It needs to feel like that you deserve to talk about them, not just oh, they're like a nice person who just
1: wants to eat DiGiorno pizzas by themselves. That's a that's an important distinction because, and I'm exaggerating here, but if you like murder somebody and then you're just like I want to drop off the map and never you know don't n- stop doing interviews, like you kind of can't do that. Like <laughs> if somebody's gonna to come and try to find you and be like, hey, why'd you f- murder that guy? like you you, you kind of you you lose your agency to anonymity and then and and then there's that crossover point where it starts to it, you you cross the line to the, like a level of inappropriateness when there's just a person who's never done anything to anybody other than create amazing work and but they just want to be left alone now and it's like what 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 is their what is their responsibility to the public once they've once they've created that work and then they decide that they want to be left alone? A lot of people would say, well, you know, it's what you sign up for whenever you become a celebrity. Like that's, that's the stock answer. Anytime anyone's ever like, Jesus Christ, like leave these paparazzi, leave these people alone. You're just like harassing Ben Affleck and his children coming out of church or whatever. It's like, well, it's what they signed up for, being a celebrity or whatever. And there's like a certain – to a certain extent that's true, but like that's just a thought-terminating argument for we just get to treat these people however we want because they owe us something. There's also gradations or stratas in this conversation, right? Because there's a difference between being
0: a public-facing performance-based individual and a novelist or like a, you know, a fucking tambourine player or – you know what I mean? Like it's just – Objectively there is some of these things that are just not as forward facing. So like if somebody is more private like yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. The triangle player
1: in Hootie and the Blowfish doesn't deserve to have their life blown up. I camp outside of the house of the triangle player from Hootie and the Blowfish every night in hopes to catch a glimpse of him.
0: Yeah, that's true. You are the only hardcore fan of Sven Bjorgen, the uh the triangle
1: player in Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah.
0: Sven Bjorgen Sven Bjorgen One
1: one snap of Sven Bjorgensen And I can can send my kids to
0: college I mean I've I've even tried to convert you I've tried to convert you to their new Because Sven quit the band in you know 99 and so for the past 20 years Hooting the Blowfish has had a new Triangle player uh, Marcus Aurelius Nah I'm not
1: into the Aurelius years Not into the Aurelius years at all
0: yeah, I tried to invite you to the uh, the monster truck rallyus, and you were like, "Nah, man, he's uh, he he doesn't hit those triangles
1: the right way." Yeah, that's that's like his side project where it's just him in the center of a stadium with a triangle, while Bigfoot and Gravedigger and all these other monster trucks just like fly around him as he's just doing like a a, a magical triangle solo. Too too flashy for me. Sven Jorgensen was all about subtlety. It was it was it was the it was about the craft, you know. So in the documentary, I just want to talk about some
0: of the kind of the highlights of the stuff that happens and uh, kind of discuss more about what we've kind of been already talking about. But one of the things that he does is John Malouf tracks uh, Vivian Meyer's last remaining family members down. He goes to the little French village where she um, summered in multiple times. Um, He finds like a distant cousin who's like, you know, like an 85 year old man who met her when he was like a child. And um, they put on a show in this French village and a bunch of people that were in the village as younger people come and they're all like, oh wow, look at the photos. This is me when I was 19, look at me. And then put on a little hat and go, wow, look, it's the same hat in the video or in the photo. And um, there's just all this weird stuff at the end of the documentary where, the, the, the other thing I would say about this Finding Vivian Meyer documentary which is the main source that everyone's drawing all their information from. And the thing that really dictates a lot of the narrative for her art career and John Maloof's puppetry of it um, is that it, it kind of is too long and it it is very precious and it just, like, drags in certain components and it kind of, like, keeps backtracking. Like, instead of being chronological or asymmetrical and like jumping around giving you little bite sized increments uh that leading towards a central conclusion. Uh it kind of like asks a question and then answers that question, and then asks another question and then answers that one. And like then three fourths of the way through the movie drops this bombshell that she was abusive to at least one, if not multiple, but at least one on the record child where she was force feeding the child by choking the child. And like it seems like that was part of Her trauma response that as she aged, her mental illness was taking over more and more. And because of whatever happened to her as a child, it manifested as this thing where she was quite cruel to this young person. Um, But then the movie and John Maloof don't really interact with it in any way. And I'm curious what your opinion would be or what your opinion is of like when somebody like this is exhumed culturally, do we how do we reckon with that? Those questions of like, (laughs) this person was mentally ill, but they also inflicted harm. But also their narrative of that they were a recluse and didn't want their work to be seen is so interesting that it propels the interest in the work and uncovers these deeper questions. Like to me, if we just didn't talk about fucking Woody Allen or Roman Polanski again, I'd be like fucking sick dog. Fucking chill. But does that impact somebody like this? I don't know. What do you think?
1: I, I think the reason probably why the documentary is so stilted and not very well constructed is because it reminds me of actually the the Dear water Mr. Watterson documentary because I felt the exact same way about that one. Which is like, this is a documentary made by somebody who doesn't know how to make documentaries. It's just like some guy who's just like, I'm going to film a bunch of stuff and then edit it together. That's what a documentary is, right? There's no concept of like narrative throw, th- uh, narrative through line or crafting scenes to be cinematic because documentaries are inherently cinematic. They're not just like literal documentations of events in chronological order. They are narrative films. Um, and it, it, that's how I felt about Dear Mr. Mr. Watterson. Just very, 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 uh, very stilted. Not a, not a, a whole lot of, um, it, you know, v- the pacing was really bad. Um, not a lot of narrative drama. It's just It was just kind of like footage edited. Um, the Watterson one is still probably in like the top
0: 10 of comics documentaries. But that's because there are no good ones. <laughs> it's just like... It's, like, comic book confidential, Claremont's X-Men, the Image documentary, Grant Morrison talking with ghosts, and then the Watterson one. Like, that's—it's just—there's just, like—there's, like, like five of them, and they're all kind of pro-am, but that's kind of what I like about them. Like, they're so raw, and people there for the—that's why I like comics, because it's so raw and pure, and people are there not to make the money, but to express an idea or— you know, uh, communicate a a passion for something. And yeah, I, I, all of the things that you've said about the Watterson documentary, I a hundred percent also thought, but then at the end of the day, I was just kind of like, eh, at least it exists. Comics documentaries,
1: at least it's cool. (laughs) My favorite comics documentary is see you in the funny papers by Tony Baloney, creator of Chuchi Wuchi. Um I feel like that was a a very that, that that was one of the greatest documentaries of all time, let alone comics documentaries. Yeah, but I mean in terms of in terms of what you asked, I mean that yeah, I it, it's a super complicated thing because there's I mean there's already like interesting there's there's already an interesting paradigm when you talk about figures like Polanski or Woody Allen or or any anybody like that, Bill Cosby or like serial killers, you know where it's like it's not always clear and you get you get contradictory viewpoints on whether or not we should be discussing them a lot or not giving them the platform that they very obviously want right the the dichotomy between like we need to discuss these things. And talk about the brutality of the actions of these people and never let people forget about that or never let it be sugarcoated. versus the idea of, like, we should never talk about these people again because they just want the attention. That's exactly what they want. They want to live in infamy forever. So there's already that for very famous high-profile people that have done horrible things, you know? And then you introduced in this idea of like, as we were talking about before, this woman who never wanted to be known. She never wanted to be in the spotlight, let alone have these problematic aspects of her mental illness be discussed or factored into her legacy that she didn't want to have. Um and then and then yeah, it becomes an even grayer area of like whether or not that's fair, because I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna defend abusing a child i'm not going to i'm not going to be like i mean first of all there you know somebody doing something as a, as in response to deep mental illness there is something there of like you know she she was experiencing this she experienced this trauma and she was suffering from mental illness and this thing happened and it was terrible but it happened for a reason it happened because of these struggles she had you get into the complexities of like how you know how do you discuss these things it's very it's very complex weighing like the the burden of personal responsibility that any person has mental illness or um you know disability aside versus how much of that can be explained by the mental illness or the disability versus like how much they're still responsible for it even given having that mental illness or disability and her i mean it's it's not even like
0: it was a period and then she got help like it like ruined her life like you know like we talked about earlier she ended up living in an apartment by herself eating trash like literally eating trash you know like uh, it's just really sad you know it's a really sad life it's a really sad trajectory and you know uh, our society doesn't have safety rails for people past 18 and once they move into adulthood it's really easy to fall through the cracks especially if you don't have a family that cares for you um, or a connection to a family at all, seemingly. That she, I think, she had one living relative who was an aunt who willed everything that she owned when she died to a best friend because she didn't want Vivian or the other two people that were alive to have any sort of remuneration. It's crazy. I don't I mean, who knows what the situation is there, but
1: Yeah, but what but whether or not it's fair to whether or not it's fair to bring that up and discuss it in the context of this person's legacy. I I I really I don't know because like I said, I'm not going to defend this abuse of a child and I don't really fully understand where the line is of like personal responsibility Versus like, you know, mental health struggles, you know, maybe somebody should have just recognized that and seen that this person should not be watching children, you know, because she was going deeper into mental illness. At a certain point, people around, you know, around this person should recognize that and be like, actually, you know what, I think maybe she should, her nannying days are over, like, and nobody recognized that and they just, you know, continued leaving her with kids.
0: Yeah, totally. And I, and I think there's an interesting dichotomy there, too, of like being a very giving, positive person, if not a stern taskmaster for some children, and uh, then also being a very shy, reclusive, you know, individual and not wanting to interact with adults and being very secretive. And yeah, I, I don't know. And also being somewhat of a voyeur, you know, going through your life, living behind a camera as a way of detaching yourself from everything and creating a permission structure for you to be um a passive participant in any event like there's a part where the one of the kids got really hurt as a little kid and like was like in the street like waiting for an ambulance and vivian meyer was just there taking photos of everything like she wasn't comforting the kid she wasn't talking to him just literally documenting stuff full-on night crawler shit yeah 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 child child crawler shit which eh, well i think
1: that's probably something else yeah that's something different yeah, Vivian Meyer was just like if it bleeds it
0: leads yeah yeah, yeah. come on little Timmy bleed more um, yeah I mean I think to sum this up though you know I think my closing thoughts would be something along the lines of Vivian Meyer is a very interesting person flaws and all her photos are very compelling to me personally I'm glad that I've seen them and I on just a purely experiential level I'm glad that John Maloof has done this because I feel like the photos are amazing. And then also I feel very conflicted and like he shouldn't have done this. And it's kind of weird, especially once he did enough research to know that. But I think that's the thing is, I don't think he did know, in it. He, how could he? Nobody knew anything about her, right? So they couldn't have known that she was a recluse and wouldn't want these things published initially. He puts them online, they get a bunch of attention and then it's this weird like, you know, game of half measures where it's like, we're already this far. I didn't know that she wouldn't want it initially. And now that's got all this attention, we're already here. Like I got to keep going. You got to see where it ends, you know? So I think that's, again, something that's fascinating and I can relate to it. You know, we've done many episodes about people that were strange or reclusive or whatever. And we've either tracked some of them down and interviewed them on the show or they're no longer with us, you know, because like, I mean, you Uh, McCaslin is a very similar story you know Phantom Patriot like if that guy was alive would we have platformed him because he's a straight up like conspiracy theorist reptilian borderline anti-Semite thing would we have contributed to that I don't know he's a he is a convicted literal domestic terrorist would we have platformed that I don't know in absentia due to his unfortunate suicide due to mental health issues does that culpability remove us from any, or are we removed from any culp- culp- moral culpability? Kind of, yeah, because like, there's no. Now it's a cautionary tale as opposed to actually giving someone a platform, right? Is 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 Vivian Meyer's death and legacy being used by John Maloof to profit? Yes, but where is the line? Like, I I don't I don't know where that line is. But it's very interesting to me, the calculus of it and attempting to figure out where that line is. Um, I don't know. Spandrew, do you have any closing thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's similar in line to what you were saying. And it's it's kind of, I, I feel similarly similarly to you. So it's hard to really, I mean, you know, you you said a lot of the same things that I'm thinking. Um, you know, wh- one, you know, little way that I think about it, and I, I had thought about this before, and it's a shame that I don't happen to have this out here. But I feel similarly to sort of the the idea of examining Vivian Myers' work and making this podcast episode about it um, at all, despite everything that we've just discussed. I feel similarly to it to the fact that um, I don't have it with me right now. All I, I have my uh, I actually have my Bob's Big Boy coffee mug with a with a with a googly eye over one of his eyes. Um, but one of my other frequently used coffee mugs is. A uh, 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 a a Calvin and Hobbes coffee mug that I've had for years, and it's just one of my favorite mugs that I use along with like two or three other ones. And the distinct thing about that, if you are in any way knowledgeable of Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Watterson, is that you you, you know just knowing that you know that I have purchased uh pirated knockoff merchandise because. Famously, uh, no merchandise has ever been produced of Calvin and Hobbes. Everything that has ever been produced of Calvin and Hobbes that's merchandise is bootleg. So those fucking stickers on the back of cars with Calvin peeing on shit, like that's not an official licensed image of of Calvin. Um, And similarly, I, I bought that mug on Etsy and it's just like some person that made it. Um, and it's technically just very directly against the wishes of Bill Watterson to to uh, make merchandise of Calvin and Hobbes. And in fact, it was like a big thing that during the popularity of Calvin and Hobbes, there was all millions of kids—maybe not millions, but tons of kids—who wanted a Hobbes doll, and they were just like, "If we did this, like, we'd be we'd make millions of dollars. We'd be rich." And Bill Watterson was like, "No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to commercialize." the the characters, um, and I feel similarly to it as that is I feel very conflicted about owning that mug because I I gave in to my better I gave in to my desire to want something Calvin and Hobbes and I like to collect coffee mugs and I have a lot of different coffee mugs with a lot of different stuff on them and I gave in to the desire to want a Calvin and Hobbes coffee mug I found one that I really liked and I loved the design and it was a well made thing. And I gave in to the urge, but I feel when I look at the mug, I feel bad that I have it, that I paid for it because, yeah, a little bit. It's not like it's not like a it's not like a really bad guilt, but I I, there's a little thing in the back of my mind when I look at it where I'm like, I I did something wrong. And maybe and maybe that's my and maybe that's just my neurodivergent, like obsession with justice and order. Like, I just don't like getting in trouble and feeling like I'm breaking the rules. And maybe it's just that, but there's a, something in the back of my mind when I see that mug where I'm just like, I'm not supposed to have this. This is not good. This is not right. Um, and I, I feel similarly to that as this, only this is more profound because that's just like, oh, like Bill Waterson just didn't want to commodify his characters. Like that's an admirable desire. But at the end of the day, it's not like not like that big of a deal. Like he, he's not impacted by somebody making a bootleg Calvin and Hobbes mug this is a little bit more profound and i but i feel similarly to it of like i find it very fascinating i think her work is amazing i love looking at those photographs i've i've been openly critical of photographers on this show because i i'm i used to be a photojournalist and i am i i'm knowledgeable of the world of photography and i see a lot of photographers that are just they call themselves photographers because they have a camera and they know how to like set an f stop and uh, this is a, this is an amazing example of somebody who just talked the talk, like or walked the walk. that's that's the right phrase. Um, her photography is amazing. It's effortlessly amazing. But there's also a part of it in the back of my mind where I'm just like, yeah, but like she wouldn't have liked us doing this. She wouldn't have liked us sitting here talking about her. And I can understand that I can understand that impulse to not want to be seen in certain situations. And there's a little bit of the there's a little bit of that at, the, at the back of my mind where I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. It's this whole thing just—she, prob- she probably would
0: have been distressed by this. I mean, depending on what time we're talking about, definitely. Just about how her mental illness would have manifested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't I don't know. I think it's a fascinating story. And um, I'm very curious if her standing in the art world as an outsider artist, despite being highly skilled or because of being highly skilled, will evolve over time. And if people will eventually end up reevaluating her position, specifically in connection with John Malouf, Or not. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, I feel like this episode has yielded a lot of discussion. So on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or on the socials at xdavebakerx. Um, please go pre-order my book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, available from Top Shelf Productions in February, February 13th precisely. It's basically like if uh, Buckaroo Bonsai and House of Leaves... Had a baby. Spandrew, where can people find you
1: on the internet? Well, You can can find me nowhere because I I don't want you looking for me. And please respect my wishes and do not look for me. And you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. Because once again, I do not want to be found. Please respect my privacy. But if you want to pay your respect to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, dapricerights.com, and you can pick up his comic, Deadbolt AI private eye. You can follow us on social media by going to Facebook and searching Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group called the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group where we talk about the show, make memes, and other stuff. You can join our Discord server by going to bitly.com/slash deep cuts discord where we talk about the show, make memes, play games, and other cool stuff. We have a nice little community there. And you can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can follow me on TikTok at deadboydetective. You can go to our website, deepcutspod.com. You can click on the shop. You can get hats, T-shirts, bags, fanny packs with cool Deep Cuts graphics on them. And you can f- you can look at our gallery of uh, a box of Hillsmer's shit that he kept in his under his bed. We found it. And we were like, this is amazing shit. And we put it in our gallery, and he's really mad about it.